We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking a guest. And then resume Dan Weeks and Dave Woodard. So not to be divisive, populist, or extremist, the middle would like both sides to come together for a group hug and a wet, sloppy kiss. Yeah, baby. Mud wrestling is bound to get messy. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Uh, the gang's all here and lots going on as uh, we weave our way through uh, the middle of the week. And, uh, um, you know, uh, well, first of all, let's start off with just another horrific tragedy in the policing community. Uh, and that being with uh, the death of another officer, this uh, York Regional Police Officer, 38-year-old Travis Gillespie, uh, who was driving on his way to work. Uh, this morning and is in a head-on crash. This, of course, uh, after the shooting that uh, we saw in uh, Mississauga and shootings, Mississauga, and then in Milton, and then finally the scene ending in Hamilton. So just a, uh, a horrific time, tragic time for uh, the police community. We want you to listen to this from Global News's uh, Matt McCarty. Constable Travis Gillespie was on his way to work when his Honda Accord was involved in a head-on crash with a Porsche. It happened at around 6 o'clock near Major McKenzie Drive and Warden Avenue. Police Chief Jim McSween confirmed the 38-year-old officer was pronounced dead at the scene. The driver of the Porsche, a 23-year-old man from Markham, was taken to a hospital. Gillespie was sworn in as a police constable in April of 2020. Previously, he worked as a special constable on GO Transit for Metrolinx. York police say Gillespie is survived by his parents, loved ones and colleagues. Matt Carty, Global News. Uh, So there you have it, another tragedy in the uh, policing community and your hearts have to go out to... uh to all in the families involved in the community as well. Uh, hard enough to stomach what we've just been through in the last couple of days, and then to have uh, this uh, end up in the news is just uh, unbelievable. All right, also monitoring and watching uh, the long lines that are paying respect to the Queen right now at uh, Westminster Hall. We'll continue to lie in state for uh, four days there. We will talk about that coming up throughout uh, the course of the show. Also, some uh, confusion in regard to uh, the holidays and the patchwork of holiday that is September 19th. And uh, the provinces, depending upon where you are, Quebec and Ontario, uh, it's recognized as a, a day of, of uh, mourning, but uh, the schools and everybody is in. Uh, the banks have announced that uh, they are, will be open. And the reason is, is because this is not a bank holiday. And the confusion really started at the beginning when the prime minister suggested that this would be a federal holiday, but he he stopped short of, of declaring it a stat holiday, which is really our poll question of the day today. Should uh, Monday be a stat holiday in Canada to mark the uh, passing of the Queen? 60% of you saying yes right now, 40% of you saying no. Uh, that would eliminate, have eliminated all the confusion and patchwork of what have you, but 
uh, basically the schools, uh, that's where this seems to lie because businesses will be open. Uh, the banks have all stated that they will uh, be in operation as well. So any of the federally regulated businesses, whether it's banking or what have you, uh, will be open. So uh, it's business as usual. And for small business, uh, Dan Kelly of the CFIB, Canadian Federation for Independent Business, had this to say on why this is not a good idea on such short notice. If every Canadian were given a paid day off, the estimates are that it would cost between 2 and $4 billion for every Canadian to either take the day off or be paid extra if they are required to work. 2 to $4 billion. So this is not insignificant. And more on uh, the type of holiday that, that it is and in, in why it is with the way it is. The question is whether it needs to be a paid day off. For every Canadian. Uh, the federal government has now decided that it's going to go further than the United Kingdom itself. The king himself announced that it is a bank holiday that applies only to government and, uh, and private sector employers are not required to pay for a day off, nor are they required to close. So there you have it. Uh, so in Canada, federal employees uh, have the option, have the day off. However, banks, businesses and such uh, will remain open. And depending upon where you are in the country provincially, uh, that's whether the schools will close or not. Ontario and Quebec have announced they will not do that. The East Coast has announced that they will make this um, uh, will honor and and the kids won't be in school. And I think PEI actually did declare it a state provincial holiday. But again, I'm not sure what that means. But uh, at the end of the day, with it out being a federal stat holiday and federal agencies such as banks and government regulated businesses and such being slowed uh, closed, then that sort of creates a rippling effect of businesses uh, then closing and so so on and so forth, and then eventually down to the schools. A funeral at about 6 a.m. I believe on. Uh, the morning of the 19th, so um, I'm not sure how many Canadians are going to be up to watch it anyway. That being said, um, you know, I, I'll always take a holiday. I will always take a holiday. Um, but as far as teaching the kids and such, I think the best thing would be to have them in school, and at 9 a.m. when it's all over, they can recap what they've, uh, you know, what has happened in the previous hours uh, with the Queen's funeral and such. So uh, fascinating to see how this has all sort of come about. Um, but again, the confusion sort of started at the top with the Prime Minister when he said that it would be a federal holiday, but stopped short of calling it a stat holiday. And then we have a patchwork with some provinces doing this, other provinces doing that. And, uh, you know, the debate ensue. So if you want to go to the Twitter poll, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Should Canada uh, have made uh, Monday, the 19th, a stat holiday uh, in Canada in order just to clear up all of this mess and and give it all up? And then the big question is, what happens moving forward? Does this become a permanent holiday? At this point, it's not. It's just temporary. Uh, But will it become something that we honor in the future? Uh, Still things to be debated, as well as the pictures on your money. Just another horrific story coming out of York Region and a Another tragedy in the policing community with the York Regional Police Officer losing his life this morning in a car crash. And, of course, we remember just uh, uh, the, the crime scenes both in Mississauga, Milton, and, of course, ending in Hamilton and the shooting of a Toronto police officer. So it has been a couple uh, a uh, tragic couple of days for those in the community and the policing community especially. Uh, to get an update on what has been going on uh, in regard to the sus- uh, suspected gunman who killed two, including a Toronto police officer, injuring three others. He had a lengthy criminal record, according to parole records obtained by Global News, to talk more about all of this from Global News. Catherine McDonald is with us. Catherine, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Uh, well, you know, it's funny. We're talking about uh, the suspect in the fatal shooting of a Toronto police officer in Mississauga, and today I'm in Markham at the uh, scene of this uh, terrible fatal motor vehicle collision involving a York Regional Police Officer. So I know we're talking about uh, Sean Petrie, the suspect, but just so you know, this has been a, a tremendously difficult time for a crime reporter like me, uh, and I'm sure people on radio who talk about... Um, you know, what's going on on in the GTA. I, this is just uh, unbelievable that this could happen two days apart with these two crimes. Catherine, uh, give us an update on where you are and, and, and what's going on and, and what we know about this accident before we get to uh, the shooting. Yeah, no problem. So I'm up here um, in Markham on Major Mackenzie Drive uh, near Warden. Now, uh, this officer, uh, a 38-year-old, he was at Constable Gillespie. He was on his way to work this morning at two districts. He was heading west along Major McKenzie uh, when he was involved in a head-on collision. He was in a Honda. He uh, collided with a Porsche uh, SUV, and uh, he was pronounced dead on scene. The uh, other driver, a 23-year-old man from Markham, went to hospital uh, with non-life-threatening injuries. Uh, as for Constable Gillespie, I mean, I just we're hearing that he was an incredible guy. He only became an officer in 2020. I, I know from someone uh, who knew of him that he worked with the, he had just passed the test to become an emergency response unit officer along with the uh, uh, uniformed officer. Uh, he was a volunteer. Uh, he was at Metrolinx as a special constable for 10 years in which he was recognized uh, in 2019. And sources tell me that he had a girlfriend, they, she was pregnant, and they just bought a new house. Uh, and all of this, we don't know why the investigation is now very much in its infancy, but uh, what York Regional Police are getting the assistance of Peel Regional Police uh, Major Collision Bureau. My sources tell me that speed and impairment, meaning alcohol or drugs, may be a factor, and the other driver could be facing some pretty serious charges along the lines of impaired operation of a motor vehicle causing death and dangerous driving causing death. So the story, sadly, uh, it begins today with the death of an, of an officer going to work in the morning. And it could be years before we hear the end of this case. Uh, and then the road remains closed. And unlike Mississauga, I have yet to see anyone come lay a flower. It's kind of a rural area. There's a huge uh, mm. road closure because it's going to take them a long time to reconstruct what happened here. But I, as I said, my sources are telling me this this was not an accident. This may be yet another case of a suspected of an impaired drive, suspected impaired driver who's driving at high speeds. Uh, I do these cases. These cases uh, last week I did one on Friday, where I first time Sandra actually got nine years uh, and uh, mm. and a long driving ban. So I, I can tell you these cases take years to go through the courts, and um, I'm really sad for the family of, of this young child. Uh, any word, Catherine, on when police will announce uh, whether charges will be laid, or will speak to the media on this? Yeah, so the police uh, media officer was here today. I asked her, I told her that this is what we're hearing. Again, confirmed that they're looking at speed and perhaps alcohol or drugs was a factor in this crash. She said no word on any charges and that uh, she was unaware. Again, I, I mean, these are the cases I do every day, impaired driving and speeding and dangerous mm-hmm. driving. And, you know, I'm pretty connected to a lot of these uh, officers. And now we're looking at, uh, you know, York Regional Police and Peel involved in this investigation to maintain the integrity because it, Imagine these York Regional police officers coming upon a, a or getting called to this terrible collision this yeah. morning, and then realizing yeah. the driver who killed was a fellow officer. So, I think that's going to come in the in the next few hours, if not days. 
Uh, and why is uh, Peel doing the investigation with this, Catherine, as opposed to York? As I said, I think it's to maintain the integrity of the investigation. Right. Anytime uh, you're investigating, uh, you know, a, a collision involving one of your own, somebody say, "Well, he's biased." You know, he's a detective. That right. he knew that guy, and that was a, he's an officer. And so you don't want to have anyone uh, alleging that there's this. And so this will, will make it, uh, you know, will be a completely uh, removed police agency. That I think they're going to be leading this investigation. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the shooting. My goodness, what a day. And the suspect there, obviously we know very little about that investigation, the SIU involved there, um, but we are finding more and more out about the shooter. What can you tell us there? Yeah, his name is Sean Petrie. Now, first of all, Sean Petrie, we knew this name because police put out a, a picture of the police and then there was a bulletin that went out, an emergency alert. So his name friendly man that we, we confirmed that Sean Petrie was not 30, as the bulletin said. He's actually 40. The spelling of his name is different than the, the name that was put out in the tweet that Peel Police put out at the time of the shooting. What we can tell you is Sean Petrie has a very, very lengthy record um, involving property crimes, robbery, drug trafficking, weapons possession. Um, in 2010, he actually got parole board documents when he was being released on statutory release, which means he didn't get a parole. He served uh, two-thirds of his sentence. He, he got, I, I found out from the court that he was, he was uh, sentenced to three and five years for uh, ro- concurrent robbery uh, cases, and there were other charges were still not clear what they were. But in the parole documents, it tells us that he had convictions for drug trafficking, tra- trafficking robbery, and property crimes, weapons. And, mm. you know, they went to the unusual step when they released of him of putting extra conditions upon his release. They didn't want him to have any contact uh, with any other gang members uh, or affiliates. And they actually suggested that he not go into a certain geographical area in Toronto where his crimes were committed, where they said he would be in contact with negative peers. And um, they also suggested that he not use narcotics because he had a problem with cocaine and marijuana. And uh, finally, uh, they took the unusual step of saying, you know, you, you could use electronic monitoring bracelet, and we would suggest you have a It's not clear if that was a post. But clearly they were concerned about... Um, the fact that he might uh, risk them. Mm. And uh, they said, you know, while you took uh, violence prevention programming in, in prison, in some days, and he planned to live with a girlfriend who's pro social, and he had sibling support, they were concerned because um, he'd had some negative contact, conduct in prison, and they, they wanted to make sure that he, when he got up out of jail, he would get, get employment. He would get educated you know, be in school. As I said, mm-hmm. until this point, everything you've done, all, all, any, any way you make money is always illegitimate. It's as if, you know, quote, employment forms a key plank in your correctional plan. Upon your release to security, you will repair assistance in this area, given most of your past abilities to garner money were illegitimate. So we know that he went on to get his job sometime last year at this auto body shop in Milton. And we know from friends who we spoke to, my colleague at Marcon was there. He worked there for a couple of weeks, only two or three weeks last year. He lost his job. He was not a good employee. And then he reportedly went back. I mean, we learned from friends that he went back to this about a month ago. Again, he showed up two weeks ago and he threatened his former boss. And mm. that's the man he allegedly killed uh, Monday. 
Catherine McDonald with us, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News for more on both of these two very tragic stories. Catherine, uh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And our condolences to everybody on the scene with you there today. Be well. Okay, thanks for your call. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's head down to the ledge and find out what's going on at Queen's Park, uh, whether it's uh, paying tribute to the Queen, adjourning till October 25th, or more recently breaking news about long-term care and our hospital system. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and he's with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So, a uh, big story uh, today, Ontario patients to be charged a daily fee for refusing to leave hospital. What, what exactly is this about? Explain the details to us. Yeah, so I think what everyone has to know about Ontario hospitals is currently there are, at any given hospital, a number of what's called alternate level of care patients. These patients no longer require acute care. They require more longer term care or they have to be you know, taken care of at home. The trouble is there might not be a spot for them at their preferred long-term care home. So what the province is now saying is they're going to hire care coordinators. So this care coordinator would come into a hospital. They would take a look at the patient's file and say, you know what, there's a, there's a long-term care home here that actually has a bed. I know it's not on your preferred list of options, but it has a bed available and they can take care of you with all of your needs. So the care coordinator can then admit that patient to the long-term care home. At the same time, the doctor would discharge the patient from the hospital. So basically, this patient now has you know, nowhere to go. They're being, in effect, evicted from the hospital. Um, and they're being told, you either have to go to the long-term care home, and if you refuse, we're going to start charging you a daily $400 fee to continue to remain in that hospital bed. Because, as we know, there's a lineup of people in the emergency room are waiting to get into that hospital bed. So would this depend on the doctor um, uh, signing off and discharging you? I mean, is that the ultimate, uh, if the doctor discharges you and you refuse to leave, what are options then? Yeah, so that's basically it. it you know, this is kind of twofold, right? On one hand, the doctor has to discharge you. That, that, that right. means that, you know, you no longer require immediate attention. You no longer re- require immediate care. Uh, you know, you, you might have uh, some kind of a condition that would take a little bit longer to, to take care of, or you might have dementia as an example, and you might be better taken care of by a, a personal support worker in a long-term care home. So two things would need to happen. The doctor would have to discharge you, which means you no longer need hospital immediate hospital attention. Now, typically in the past, these patients have just languished in hospital, waiting for their their preferred long-term care home to have an available bed for them to move into. But if your preferred home doesn't have that bed, you just end up staying in hospital for a really mm. long time. And the government argues they don't have the proper um, you know, tools necessary to care for those patients' complex needs. And they don't have social programs either, you know, like going down and playing bingo, as an example, or, mm. or congregating in a common area. A long-term care home does. So a care coordinator would, without your consent, enroll you into a long-term care home, and then the patient has no choice. They either have to leave the hospital or they face a $400 fee on a daily basis to continue to remain in that hospital. Are there many patients, Colin, who have been discharged by a doctor but are still left in 
um, in the hospital because they can't get to the the, the place of their choice? Uh, are there are the numbers that large? Uh, people yeah, the who numbers have been discharged fa- but won't live, but uh, have, been, have have been discharged but won't leave. Yes, yeah, the, the numbers are in the low thousands, about uh, 2,000 or so seniors who uh, require, uh, you know, more complex care in right. a long-term care home currently in the province. Uh, the province won't say exactly how many beds they'd be able to free up right now. They're saying maybe about 400 patients could be moved out of a hospital and into a long-term care uh, bed. But I, I should say, this is a long-standing problem in Ontario hospitals. The Ontario Hospital Association has been raising this issue ever since the Ford government took office. This was an issue under the former Liberal government as well. It's just always been around. The government is now taking action on it, but whether or not you know, people will feel okay with the type of action that they're taking is another question. And, and one key thing to note here, in Southern Ontario, as an example, you, a patient could be moved 70 kilometers away from their place of residence. Right. So that's equivalent of moving from the University Health Network in Toronto to the to the Hamilton Health Sciences Center hmm. or, or, or a long-term care home in Hamilton. And that, some argue, is a really long distance for family members who end up being caregivers to travel on a daily or weekly basis to go see their, um, their loved one. So where is this now? When does this go into effect? So it's already in law, but the regulations take effect on the 21st of September. So on the 21st of September, these care coordinators can start, you know, effectively handing these seniors their eviction notices from hospital. Uh, But on the other side, the, the payment, the fee doesn't go into effect until November 20th. So as of November 20th, if a patient refuses to leave a hospital, even though they've been told you have to leave because there's a place in a long-term care home for you. They'll then start facing a daily fine of about uh, $400, which goes back to the hospital itself. Any reaction from the hospital on this? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the hospitals have been, you know, to some degree dealing with this alternate level of care patient problem for a long time, and they've been looking for some kind of a solution. Now, this this solution has already existed in the system, right? So currently, um, if a patient is offered a position in a long-term care home that's their choosing, and they say, you know what, I like the hospital, I'd rather stay here, they can actually face a fee of up to $1,800 a day. That's the the maximum fee that a hospital could levy. The University Health Network in Toronto, as an example, say it is very, very rare. Sometimes they say just the the conversation about the fee is enough motivation for those patients to leave the hospital room. Um, And and so they say they only have to implement that worst case scenario maybe once maybe twice per year. So it is rare that it is actually used, but the government is now giving hospitals this tool to use it much more frequently. Um, you know, and some critics, especially political critics, say it amounts to coercion, uh, coercing a, uh, a patient, a vulnerable patient, to leave a hospital room and go into a long-term care home. That's not if they're choosing. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global for more on all of this. Ontario patients could be charged daily fees for refusing to leave a hospital after a doctor has discharged them. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
But I think when I came to the city, it would have been early 90s, 1991, something like that, and worked at Y95, and and the city was in a much, much different place uh, than it is now. And, you know, it, it's great that, uh, that knowing now how far the city has come in a relatively short period of time. And now for the third year in a row, Hamilton has been declared one of Canada's best locations to invest in for 2022 by an international publication for corporate real estate and economic development. Site Selection Magazine bases its rankings on corporate facility investment data as a means of creating per capita measures of municipal co- uh, competitiveness. To talk more about all of this, Norm she- uh, Schlehand is with us, Director Economic Development, City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Norm, thanks for the time again. Hope you're doing well. Doing very well, Scott. Boy, this is great news. Third year in a row for this. Uh, what does this say about where Hamilton has come in the last 10 or 20 years? Well, it's uh, it is quite an accomplishment, and you know it take, took a lot of people to to get to this point. Uh, um, it, it's just you know uh, one of Hamilton's issues in, in the past was the availability of service land, and um, and uh, we've certainly come a long way to develop some of our our business parks uh, up in Ancaster and Flamborough, and and what we've really seen over the last little while is that uh, private developers uh, developers that uh, used to only developing the GTA from an industrial perspective, have now recognized Hamilton as a location to, to, to bring their business and, and develop. So uh, up by the airport, uh, uh, Panatonia Development Group, the Kirpan Group up in Waterdown, uh, so, so many large names, Broccolini's, Pure Industrial, uh, uh, Fengate. These are you know large names that didn't really have a, a huge presence in the industrial markets uh, up, uh, up by the airport especially. And, and now, now they're there and uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of traction. So, Site Selection Magazine uh, does these rankings. What is the criteria? What do they base this on? How do they arrive at this conclusion? So, they they, they look at the, uh, the the level of uh, investment. So, the you know how much investment has gone into the property, uh, the, the number of uh, square footage developed, uh, as well as the job creation that goes along with that. And what does this do for Hamilton and uh, public relations exposure? Around the country, around North America, around the world. Well, it's uh, you know, it, it's just a, it's a very positive message that says you know the city is uh, is open for business. Uh, we are creating uh, opportunities for these businesses and, and their employees to establish operations here. Uh, it's certainly something we use in, in our pitch decks, uh, both at uh, the local, national, international level. So, uh, um, I mean, it, just because you have the ranking doesn't mean people are automatically going to come your way, but it certainly right. shows that. Uh, you know, you are a, a municipality that uh, that can attract uh, high-level investment. Is it any specific type of business? Uh, is it any certain industry that has shown more interest than others? So the, the beauty of, about this, Scott, is that we're, we're seeing it across the board. It's happening in, in distribution. It's happening in manufacturing. It's happening in life science. So uh, so, so we're, we're getting job, jobs of, you know, of, of all all types and uh, which which is great for our economy because we uh, Hamilton is one of the most diversified economies in the country uh, and uh, these these investments keep helping us move toward that and provide employment opportunities for people at uh, all levels of education. Hamilton is one of the most diversified economies in the country. Uh, a while ago, you couldn't say that. That's incredible when you stop to ponder it. No, and you know what? Uh, a lot of credit goes to. Uh, you know our, our former uh, economic development director uh, Neil Leverson uh, um, mm-hmm. from you know at the time of amalgamation he really 
he really said, you know what, we have to start thinking about uh, Hamilton, not uh, from individual municipalities, but uh, what are we from an industry sector perspective? And, and that's when we really started channeling into, you know, manufacturing, life science, agri- agriculture and food, goods movement. And we started building on those strengths because Hamilton has strengths in all those areas. And uh, they've been built up substantially over the last, uh, last 20 years. What does this mean for citizens, uh, people of Hamilton? You talked about jobs. Why is this good to have industry growing this way in our area? Well, n- number one for the residents of here, the more industrial and commercial assessment that we get here, that's, that lessens the impact on the residential tax, tax, uh, taxpayer, which is, which is a great mm-hmm. thing. It does provide jobs for people within the community, which is, which is uh, also a, a very good thing. They don't have to look to, to other places. And you mentioned 1991. Uh, I started in around that time, and you know, in the mid '90s, there seemed to be an exodus of companies uh, yeah. wanting to leave Hamilton, uh, and now it's turned the other way. That people, those companies, same companies, are are coming back into Hamilton, which is which is phenomenal. Just tells you how things have changed over that time period. How do we keep this trend going? Well, we we need to keep uh, identifying these opportunities, and you know what, they don't all have to necessarily be greenfield opportunities. You've got a great opportunities down in the in the, in the Bayfront area. Uh, and you know, with the, the Stelco lands coming on stream, and with the, the their acquisition by by Slate, and you know what, we're, we're, we just have to keep providing land opportunities for these, uh, uh, you know, for the industrial ones to develop. Uh, and it doesn't just need to be to be industry by any means, and the distribution. It, it could be you know intensification, and you know the downtown core areas mm. and the downtowns and. Uh, so business can ha- happen a- a- anywhere. So we have that opportunity. We have that infrastructure that's already created. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities uh, across the board, whether you want to be Greenfield, Brownfield, or otherwise. Uh, I know this maybe isn't your a- area norm, but do you see more intensification uh, intensification from a, a residential standpoint? Obviously, that discussion seems to be coming to the forefront in and around housing and such. Is it time to have that discussion? Well, I think you're already seeing that intensification happen. I and mean, yeah. you've driven down the downtown core lately and yeah. seen what's uh, the number of cranes that are throughout the downtown core and in, in the vicinity. That That's that's happening uh, uh, on, I don't know how say on its own, but it, it certainly is, uh, it is, it is well underway. Norm Schlehan with us, Director of Economic Development, City of Hamilton, third year in a row. Hamilton has been declared one of the best locations to, re, uh, to invest in in 2022. Norm, thanks for the time. Congratulations. Be well. Thanks, I'll take care. Six months. Remember when we were actually keeping track of the days? I'm not sure how many days it's been since Russia has invaded Ukraine. Many thought it would be over in a week. Uh, we're now, I guess, at the six-month mark. Uh, the difference is Ukraine's counteroffensive may be backing Putin into a corner. Uh, however, with that, does that mean fewer options and instability? Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Good afternoon. So we're hearing a lot about uh, Ukraine uh, making gains, uh, taking back, retaking some territory lost. How long does Putin let this happen? Is he letting it happen? How do you explain this? Yeah, this is, of course, a serious predicament for him because uh, it appears that for the first time they've actually acknowledged uh, the narrative that there are actual Russian losses here in terms of territory. Uh, And the blame is all going to the Ministry of Defense. Uh, But Putin is not known for apologizing, nor is he known for making 
U-turns, so Putin will likely persist with the campaign. The problem is, of course, that he's running very low on qualified soldiers, and he's also running low on assets, um, uh, just basic uh, artillery pieces, tanks, and the like. So uh, he's likely going to sustain more losses. So it'll be interesting how he's going to uh, react and strategize. So is Ukraine winning, Christian, or are they just holding their own until the next shoe drops? Well, so that's a good question, because uh, as I've always said, like Ukraine doesn't necessarily need to win this war. It just needs to be Mm -hmm. able to demonstrate that it is not going to lose. Uh, And certainly what Ukraine, I think, is demonstrating here is that it is clearly prepared to continue to fight on. And it's able to demonstrate to its Western and allied supporters that it can actually make inroads here. Uh, And I think that's been a significant turning point. And of course, now Ukraine is going to want to ask for more weapons to be able to continue to sustain the fight uh, that it finds itself in. Uh, At the end of the day, as long as Ukraine keeps being supplied with weaponry, can this continue to go on? Can he hold Putin at bay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so what the Ukrainians have done here is uh, what they can't afford is attrition warfare because they're going to lose because Russia just simply has uh, more equipment and uh, more manpower. But the Ukrainians have been very astute at maneuver warfare and they've been very astute at combined arms warfare, the things that the Russians have been very poor at. They've been very good in intelligence, very good at planning, and uh, so far they've been able to sustain their supply lines. And that's going to be the interesting question uh, with making so gains uh, such a significant gains in such a short time, uh, whether the Russians are going to try to exploit um, uh, stretch supply lines on the Ukrainian side uh, in a counterattack here. But it doesn't look like the Russians are really able to muster troops. To the contrary, uh, we have now reports even of Russian Secret Service personnel selling their villas on Crimea, uh, which suggests that uh, there is some concern that indeed the Ukrainians will be able to keep up uh, the offensive, perhaps not quite at the pace at which it has been going, Uh, But certainly it's an indication that uh, people are deeply worried and uh, the uh, rather chaotic withdrawal uh, by Russian troops uh, suggests that um, there's really not much fighting will. And the Ukrainians are clearly exploiting that uh, to uh, to the ultimate degree. So was the idea here to slowly just wear out Ukraine? Why, if they're not backed into a corner, and are you concerned if they are backed into a corner, that they'll just pounce? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there is always that risk. So I think one of the uh, poker chips that Putin continues to have in his um, in, in his deck uh, is the Japarija nuclear power plant, which, you know, short of threatening tactical nuclear weapons, uh, he's basically been using as a bargaining chip uh, that um, he could uh, uh, ostensibly um, set off uh, an, a Fukushima-like uh, radiation event of spent nuclear fuel. Uh, and I think he's been using that sort of strategically to try to rein in uh, Ukrainian ambitions. Um, and I think that's probably something that the world really does need to be concerned about, uh, that, uh, uh, that this might, uh, that a nuclear catastrophe is, uh, is one of the ways that um, Putin could retaliate by essentially making large parts of um, eastern Ukraine unlivable. So clearly after six months, Ukraine is not just going to lie down. What are Putin's options here? What I mean, is he going to turn off the gas? 
Uh, is he going to counter offense, uh, have a counterattack to these attacks from Ukraine retaking uh, territory? What's his, what are his options? Yeah, well, we know what his options are not. So a large-scale conscription of Russians is not, both because of the legitimacy and support that he needs to continue to enjoy among the Russian population and because, I mean, a Russian military that can barely keep the wheels on the wagon is not going to be able to deal with mass conscription and training that many soldiers. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see whether Putin is going to trudge on here, whether he's going to try to perhaps cut a deal with the Ukrainians. But if you're Zelensky, why would you cut a deal? deal with the Russians uh, when your forces are uh, are making inroads here. Uh, what Putin's likely going to do is going to try to hold off the Ukrainians, dig in for the winter, and then use the winter months uh, to regroup and reinforce at least his defensive positions uh, in the Donbass and southern Ukraine, whatever part of the territory he still holds. And that's why the Ukrainians are pushing so hard now, because they're trying to push back those Russian defensive lines as far as they possibly can before the onset of uh, of the fall when that terrain becomes largely impassable because it'll become essentially a um, a huge fields of mud. If this lasts, Christian, beyond, uh, and I guess there's no reason to believe why it wouldn't, beyond the winter months into next spring and such, how many, are there not even fewer options for Putin then? Well, I mean, if he can dig in over the winter, it, it will become much, much harder for the Ukrainians to counterattack. And you already see that where the Ukrainian advance starts to slow is those areas that Putin has held since 2014, where the Russians are much more systematically dug in and where the Russians also have much more robust supply lines. Uh, so if uh, it, wherever the Russians dig in, um, it will take uh, significant uh, weapon supplies and significant support from allies and partners for the Ukrainians then to be able to make real inroads against the Russians in the spring. So I think it'll be a very different war in the spring, uh, a much tougher war for the Ukrainians to fight because the Russians will be able to regroup their troops. But we'll see uh, how ingenious the Ukrainians are. So far, they've had this fantastic ruse in terms of attacking the south, and then they take back essentially more than the size of Prince Edward Island uh, in the north. So uh, so we'll see what, uh, what aces the Ukrainians still have up their sleeves uh, to continue to surprise um, Putin and his demoralized troops. Still going on after six months. Christian Leprac with us, uh, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University Fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. As always, Christian, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a lovely afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Finally, the conservative leadership race has come to an end. And uh, to the surprise of everybody, Pierre Polyevra is uh, the new leader of the conservative party. And the game is on as the divisive, extremist, populist leader of the left introduces himself to the uh, extremist, populist, divisive leader on the right. Uh, this is going to be interesting. Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, principal at Navigator and lecturer at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University, author of The Right Path. Has a current column in the National Post. Pierre Polyev is coming for Trudeau and liberals should be worried. And <laughs> Tasha is with us now. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am. Thank you so much. Uh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in some of the rooms you were in. Uh, you were a volunteer with the Sheree uh, campaign. What is your take now that it's over? Well, you know, I mean, obviously you want your candidate to win, and it's it's disappointing in that respect. Uh, it wasn't the result we were looking for. But I've been very encouraged 
uh, since the campaign is done by the tone that Mr. Polyev has taken. Um, he's certainly focusing on the issues that are common to all the campaigns, which is the issues like inflation, taxes, size of government, uh, leaving some of the contentious stuff at the door. It really didn't appear in his in his victory speech, in which he was also very magnanimous to the other candidates. And um, it certainly hasn't appeared in his speech to caucus since. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we are supportive of the leader. That is what you do when you're in a political party. And, uh, he's, uh, definitely showing that he's trying to, to bridge the common ground that exists and to make sure that we grow this tent. Cause that's really, um, you know, as I say in the book, the right path, as you mentioned, is that's really the key. You got to grow the tent if you're going to win the next election. Why should the liberals be very worried? <laughs> well, having gone through this leadership, and I can tell you, um, you know, it, it was really a, a no-holds-barred kind of contest, as anyone who's engaged in it or observed casually on Twitter, it was a nasty fight. Uh, let's be clear. I mean, leaderships can be nasty. Uh, they usually are. This one was particularly, I felt. Um, but now that fire is going to be turned out. It's going to be turned at uh, Justin Trudeau. So I said to him, get ready. Uh, you know, as someone who is on the receiving end of some of it, I can tell you it's... Uh, uh, Mr. Polyev's team is, is very tough. They pull no punches. Um, and with Mr. Trudeau, I mean, there's a lot to criticize, right? So mm. they will find a target-rich environment, and uh, they, they will be tough. They will be extremely tough on him. So, uh, you know, he, he should get ready for that kind of a scorched earth approach because it's coming. Uh, the Prime Minister already addressing uh, the leader of the Conservative Party now uh, and talking about the uh, mentioning of cryptocurrency, the Freedom Convoy and stuff. How does Pierre Polyev negotiate around that? Well, those are the, that's the pieces, actually, like I said, that he did not mention in his, um, in his uh, victory speech. He, he did allude to vaccine. He did mention vaccine mandates around COVID, that he would lift the remaining ones. Um, there's not a ton of debate. I mean, the ArriveCan app has caused issues for a lot of people. I'm not a fan of it either. But the more contentious stuff, um, you know, around the WEF, around um, Bitcoin and those kinds of things that did turn off a lot of people during leadership, no question, uh, did not appear. And I'm hoping they don't return. And if a if but Tasha, you know be, as you know as well as I do, uh, hoping it won't return, and the liberals using it. I mean, they've already used it on the first day. Oh, yeah. So, I, like, it. how does he address this if it keeps coming the whole time? Well, here's the thing. Okay, so and, and having been through this now, you Trudeau will be also talking to the converted. Anyone who who knows this and doesn't like this is probably already going to be not interested in voting for Mr. Polyev. I think that the key will be really to position him going forward and say, okay, you can dwell on what was said in leadership, you can dwell on the past, you can dwell on those things, or you can look at the platform, whatever it is that they put forward. I think the conservatives are probably going to be, you know, if I, if I were them, I would do, you know, a short and sweet kind of five-point plan, and there's been quite a few of these that have been very successful to really hammer home key messages that people are concerned about, and those will be around the economy. I think that's the main, main issue and the main focus right now. So, look, uh, if that's if that's what Trudeau is going to harp on, I think if that's not what Polyev is talking about, the argument will be like, you're talking about what was, we're talking about the future. And it'll be up to people to buy that or not. I think that it's a valid argument, though. I think like he stopped talking about Bitcoin the last two months. Um, and I hope we never hear about it again, quite frankly, uh, Mr. Polyev did. So I, I think, you know, that people can realize also that they may be going tangents that don't really hold up and that people change. And so I think that will be the response. And I think what I found in this leadership and what I wrote in the piece is that what I learned, people are a lot angrier than many of us realize, including myself mm -hmm. in our campaign. Um, 
you know, I, I think people do want a positive message, but you've got to deal with the fact that people are very frustrated with this government and address it with conservative principles, not rhetoric, not hot-headed stuff, not populist stuff, but the kind of stuff that uh, Pierre Polyev has been talking about in the last three days, and I hope he keeps that up. So what are his biggest challenges moving forward? Well, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a, a tough campaign for sure whenever it happens. I think there will be, like you said, the reminders of stuff that was that was kind of out there in this campaign that did turn people off. I think um, defining himself to people who don't know him will be the first order of business for this government and that or this opposition, mother. And, and they have to do it in a way um, that broadens his appeal. I think there's going to be uh, you know, things also the, the Conservative Party is still laboring under some of the issues of the barbaric practices snitch line of 2015 and uh, sort of anti-immigrant perception and this kind of thing. And I think that for Mr. Polyev, one of his greatest assets in that is obviously his wife, Anida, who gave a very um, I thought, extremely eloquent speech at the convention. Um, I've seen her speak before. She, she's really actually gotten very polished in terms of her presentation, and she has her honest story to tell. And I think that will go a long way to showcasing his you know humanity connected to her on this issue and i think that the, he'll have to have some policies around that too because the new canadian vote is critical to the conservatives expanding particularly in urban areas so establishing bona fides on that is going to be really really important for the party can uh, justin trudeau beat pierre polyevra with attack ads and fear-mongering crypto convoy what have you or is it going to take more than that uh, i think it would take more and i think Events will also unfold. This is the thing that's unpredictable. I mean, no one could have predicted the war in Ukraine. Well, some people say they saw it coming. Um, it, you know, mm. no one could, could have predicted COVID. There are, there are events which will happen as well in the next couple of years. And I think looking at the future as to when this election will happen, I think two things will determine. One is polls. polls. Trudeau's going to wait to the most favorable to him. And second, events. And those we can't, you know, we can't foresee. Um, you know, another convoy, I think, would be very detrimental. Uh, to the conservatives, because it would be used to say, oh, look, there's another version of this protest. If that were to happen again, for example, um, I think putting it in the background would be good for the conservatives, because there are a large number of center-right people who did not sympathize. And in fact, 70% of Canadians said they don't sympathize or they think less of a politician who supported the convoy in the first place. So that that will be out there. Um, That will have to be dealt with as to what that represents for conservatives going forward. And so I'm hoping that, you know, going forward, we have some constructive stuff in the window. Um, We talk about turning, um, you know, uh, hurt to hope. I thought that was a very good line, as opposed to dwelling on the anger. Channel the anger into something positive, and I think you have a winning formula. Tasha Kerridan with us, Principal at Navigator, lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University, author of The Right Path. Latest in the National Post, uh, Polyab is coming for Trudeau and liberals should be worried. Tasha, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. If every Canadian were given a paid day off, the estimates are that it would cost between 2 and $4 billion for every Canadian to either take the day off or be paid extra if they are required to work. 2 to $4 billion. So this is not insignificant. The question is whether it needs to be a paid day off for every Canadian. The uh, federal government has now decided that it's going to go further than the United Kingdom itself. The king himself announced that it is a bank holiday that applies only to government and, uh, and private sector employers are not required to pay for a day off, nor are they required to close. 
Come on. Get off your wallet and give us a day off. Is it that easy? Poll question of the day. Should Monday's funeral be a stat holiday? But if it's a stat holiday, that would change everything, I think, for the provinces as well. Um, uh, It's kind of confusing in a patchwork. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's here now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. So let's start at the top with this, and uh, the Prime Minister declares what? This is uh, a day off for federal employees, but not necessarily a stat holiday. How does that change things? Um, it's always been, I shouldn't, I want to be very careful because I don't pretend to be a lawyer who's up on this. I do know because I've checked this, there are in the uh, Canada Labor Code, there are 10 paid general holidays every year, uh, people, statutory holidays I'm referring to. Um, and um, and people most uh, know what they are. You know, it's New Year's Day, it's Christmas mm-hmm. Day, um, and uh, several others. I'm not going to go through them all. But the point I want to make, Scott, is that the federal government only um, legislates its and is responsible for employees that come under federal regulation, mm-hmm. and that's in the Constitution Act of Canada. So banking is federal, transportation is federal you know railroads for example mm-hmm. and so within that distinction they 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 have two they control their own employees who are significant over half a million people are employed in the federal the broader public service that includes military and rcmp by the way and then if you include the federally regulated industries the federal government is responsible for about 10 percent of all the employees in canada which clearly points to the fact that the provinces are responsible for 90% of us. I am a, although I'm employed by Carleton, I come under provincial regulation. So I will not be uh, having a statutory holiday on Monday. I'll be teaching because the province of Ontario has said it's a day of mourning, but it is not a holiday. So we're getting into the sort of the, the legal ins and outs of what constitutes a holiday. The federal government determined it was worthy of a holiday and the provincial governments, for reasons I do understand, uh, decided it wasn't. It's it's quite disruptive. Now, what about uh, what what about Ian? The fact that no bank, although it is a federal holiday, but the banks aren't following suit. Uh, federally regulated businesses such as mine aren't following suit. Right. Um, so uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really a a a federal. St- stat holiday anyway so That's right. really right. what's left what's left other than the schools under provincial provincial jurisdiction no you're quite right i mean what the federal government's really sad is the only people we're giving a holiday to are people that work for the government really, yes that's it so at the end of the day everybody thought they were getting a holiday but and really all he was and but really at the end of the day it's just the federal employees that get off it's not banks it's not businesses right. that are regulated you, by by industry or by yeah. uh government I mean, I, scott i think it was more for symbolic and yeah. uh, political reasons he wanted to send a signal to canadians that we respect the queen the late queen and it was a signal to the government of course of of uk and the royal family that canada respects it so this was a gesture i think more than anything at the national level and the provincial governments because it is costly uh we already have as i said 10 days off and that's on top of the annual leave that every employee must be paid by law and on top of sick leave so this does affect productivity nobody's talking about this and maybe you think people will think that's churlish and not very nice of me but the reality is 
I just want to put this out on the table because you know, Scott, I am evidence-based with real data from StatScan. Canada is running year after year after year. We're between 20 and 25% less productive per worker hour than our largest uh, uh, competitor and our next door neighbor called the United States. And I'm not comparing us to some country halfway around the world. The United States is right smack dab next door. And Canadians compare themselves all the time to the Americans. And we are... Uh, we have always been. That, that's why our our average wage is lower and our average costs are higher. Because our airlines, for example, uh, our our airplane tickets and so forth. And and so we are running. I'm not saying it's going to be solved by not having a uh, an annual uh, a holiday for the Queen for the funeral for the Queen. I'm just saying it's a larger consideration yeah. of productivity of the Canadian economy, which is for a year, literally most of my lifetime, adult lifetime, it has significantly lagged the United States. So now this has turned into a provincial debate and people arguing, well, how come they get it off and I don't get it off? And how come this is doing that and they're doing that? Uh, when in fact, this could all have been settled by just either making it a stat holiday or not. Is that inaccurate? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, because you see, the provincial governments are, are, are they, they, they carry the can for a lot more workers, 90% of the workers uh, in Canada. <clears throat> and remember, many of them, most of them are small business. And small business is has never been strong. And I'm saying that as a former banker that used to lend money to small businesses. They don't have the resources of big business and big banks. They are hanging on by their fingernails, a lot of them. And the, the cost would have been very, very significant. And so if they had imposed this as a statutory holiday. And so, you know, the provincial governments are saying, wait a minute, <laughs> this is going to be very costly to the local economy, uh, to the provincial economies. And employees are already getting 10 statutory holidays, plus their annual leave, plus their sick leave. So, you know, I guess they've decided that, you know, the buck stops somewhere and the premiers, uh, at least in the big provinces, and I'm talking Ontario and Quebec, remember those two provinces are yeah. two thirds of the population and of GDP of Canada. Um, and they said, no, the, we really can't uh, justify it. Uh, we only got a few seconds left, Ian, but let me ask you this. Should there have been some sort of federal plan for this? I mean, we all yeah. knew the Queen at 96 was going to pass away, and I think yes. one of the concerns of the Federation of Business, Canadian Federation of Business, was this is really short notice. So should it's we have involved. somehow had a plan in place for this? Very quickly, Scott, I agree with you. We should make it into a policy that everybody knows in advance. The following positions will get a, 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 a holiday, and they'd yeah. be very narrow. You know, maybe a, a, an incumbent, a sitting prime minister, um, uh, a sitting king or queen. Um, we would have to state it well in advance so everybody knows the rules of the game as opposed to ad hocery where, you know, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, yeah. and it makes planning difficult. So, yes, we could develop a policy and announce it both federally and provincially long in advance so people know what the rules are, and so do employers and universities and small business and big business. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, the day on or off for the Queen's funeral. The debate continues. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Global reporter David Aitken recently challenged Pierre Polyevre during a news conference, the conservative leader, in a back and forth that has uh, earned some attention. And it uh, seems that uh, the reporter upset that uh, Pierre Polyevre not taking questions, or in this case was only taking two questions, and started challenging uh, Polyevre during the news conference, and a back and forth ensued. Uh, it, it was. It, it's a very fascinating fascinating situation and you have to wonder if uh is the free ride for politicians over in the media or is this over the line let's bring in daniel perry consultant summa strategies he's with us now daniel thanks for the time i hope you're well same to you so your thoughts on all of this uh, are we going to see um uh, more media holding leaders to account do you think what are your thoughts on this Oh, I thought this particular incident was quite odd. Traditionally, David Aiken is quite friendly towards conservative leaders, mm-hmm. and usually don't see this level of hostility between a reporter and a leader on their third day uh, in their new job. So I was a bit perplexed by this. But in terms of uh, it will increase to more questions and more transparency from the media, I think they'll continue to ask questions. If you've ever been to a scrum here in Ottawa with politicians and reporters, there's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of questions wanting to be asked, and politicians usually don't like to answer them. Uh, what about how many questions, whether they take questions or not? Mm-hmm. How much time is allotted for this? Uh, should there be a standard? Obviously, you can't do that. That's asking mm-hmm. for too much. But <laughs> at what point do politicians owe reporters an answer at at, at what point are they more than just you know stenographers Uh, I think that's a great question. Politicians hate getting asked questions because it knocks them off their talking points. And a politician who falls off their talking point usually doesn't end very well for the politician. With that said, I I think there should be a certain level of questions being asked uh, of our politicians from reporters. They play an important role in our democracy, asking questions that a lot of Canadians want to know answers to. So I don't think it's a bad idea if the press gallery, especially at the federal level, outlines a few uh, guidelines saying that if you're not going to take questions, we're not going to cover your uh, news story. Uh, some have said uh, way to go, way to hold the feet to the fire. Others have said we haven't seen this sort of uh, uh, questioning of the prime minister. Your thoughts? Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that the prime minister sometimes definitely does get off light on questions, but that also happens when you're prime minister. Everyone wants to cover you so you can be a little bit more picky and choosy. When opposition, it's one of the hardest jobs in Canada because most reporters don't really care what you do because you're not the one shaping Canada's decisions. So I think it's a very fine line, and I, I don't think it's a bad idea that the press gallery gets a little bit angry with the politicians, and they ask the tough questions, and they try to get an answer from them. Is the tone of the media changing? Are they starting to stick up for their duties, per se? I I don't know if it's changing so much as I I think there's just some general frustration because at the end of the day, if a politician isn't taking a reporter's question, they're making the reporter's job harder and they're not actually being really very transparent with Canadians because at the end of the day, a reporter is an extension of Canadians because they're the ones that come into our houses every day and tell us what's going on in the world. Because I, I know for myself, if I wasn't in politics, I wouldn't be following it as closely as I do. I would definitely rely on reporters. So, yeah, I think it's not a bad thing that they're that they're getting a little bit more angry up there. What about fallout from this? It's getting a minor amount of attention on social media. Does this change strategy at all with various political parties and how they address this stuff? 
I think it plays well for Mr. Uh, Polyvar, to be honest with you, because this has been a narrative that he's been trying to spin since the beginning of the leadership race, is that it's us versus the media, conservatives versus the mainstream media. That's why he traditionally only talks to uh, alternative sources like the Rebel or um, True North, because he doesn't trust it. And I think in this case, David Aiken kind of fell into that, because right after it happened, the conservatives sent out a fundraising email saying, hey, look at this. The mainstream media is against us once again. We need to fight back. Give us 20 bucks and we'll be able to do it for you. Uh, what are your thoughts about Polly Ever calling him a, a liberal heckler? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's mildly hilarious. I, anyone that's met David Aiken or read any of his columns would never call him a liberal heckler. He used to be the uh, chief political correspondent for Sun News, which many considered to be the Fox News of the Harper government. So I, I think it's a little rich to call Aiken a liberal heckler in this case. Oh, uh, does this go anywhere? No, I think just the next interview that David Aiken has with Pierre is going to be super awkward and probably uncomfortable for both of them. Um, I, I think the new OLO and Pierre's uh, leadership team will probably not be returning a lot of Mr. Aiken's calls, unfortunately. I think he's going to be put on the old timeout. But I think at the end of the day, Everyone will get, that was involved in this incident will get over it, and then we'll go back to the table trying to report, and then politicians dodge questions. Uh, he has apologized, David Aiken mm -hmm. has, for his uh, actions. What does that add to it? What does that say? I think it just shows that David Aiken is being an adult. He realized what he did wasn't right, and instead of just uh, putting his head down and, and towing a line, he's willing to take uh, accountability for his actions. And at the end of the day, I think that was the right decision for him to do, because that was not the most professional look for him. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, uh, talking about the world of politics and the media's role in there. Uh, as always, Daniel, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Ben O'Hara Byrne, and he is in the UK right now for the funeral of the Queen. Ben, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Ben, we've been hearing a lot. We've been watching on TV the crowds, the mood, the tone of 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 this, uh, you know, uh, memorial. Uh, Ten days of of uh, a memorial for the Queen, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be always a somber occasion. We've seen the crowds burst into applause when the motorcade goes by and such in in days past. W what's the difference between everybody gathering for this as opposed to everybody gathering for a wedding or even everybody gathering for the death of Princess Di? Yeah, I mean, that's come up a lot of, of late, and I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I came over. Um, you know, I expected to be, it to be somber, which it has been at times. Certainly uh, today when the procession came past or last night when the coffin came back uh, to London or what we saw earlier in the week in Edinburgh, uh, there has been obviously a very respectful silence in those moments. But one of the things that's really struck me is just how much people want to share memories. Uh, someone I spoke to today compared it to being at the wake for a favorite aunt, for instance. You know, you, mm. what people want to do is share their memories, explain why they're there, why they decided to come out and pay their respects to the Queen, what the Queen meant to them. A lot of people are talking about uh, mums who passed away, their grandparents or their mothers, people they associated with that era that the Queen also represented. Uh, so in many ways, there's sort of a cathartic nature to everyone gathering and chatting. It isn't all about grief like it was 25 years ago with the loss of Diana, uh, you know, a life cut short. This has been a, really about, you know, there's a lot of mourning, and there's, there are solemn moments. Um, you know, people seeing the coffin has been quite emotional. 
But in general, what everyone has wanted to do is just talk about their memories of the Queen. This woman who one other person I spoke to, spoke to compared it to sort of a blanket for the nation, right? She mm. was this matriarch for England and Great Britain. And a lot of people are reacting to her death that same way. And, and it really does feel like, for many, that it is a passing, it is the end of an era, the end of that generation, whether you associate it with your grandparents or your mom, or your, you know, that, that her death is really sort of ended something special that a lot of people clung on to, and that's what they want to talk about. It's fascinating, Ben, when you said, um, you know, the Queen has touched so many people. People want to come and tell their stories of the Queen, whether uh, it was a, a chance meeting, whether it's somebody who knew somebody that saw them at a distance, what have you. Everyone coming to tell their stories. It's amazing that someone who is in such a position personally or in, impersonally touched people that way and, and had that kind of an impact. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is the longevity. You know, 70 years is a very long time to be in a position of such prominence. Mm. I think it's the fact that almost everyone, if they weren't alive to see it, you know, even in someone like my case, you know, I'm 50, I feel like I watched her, her coronation. I didn't, but I feel like I have. I feel like I watched some of those moments in the, in the 60s, but even her 21st birthday when she made that vow to serve. Uh, I feel like I've seen those things. I think people are so used to the images that it feels like they've kind of watched her grow and watched her grow old and go from being a young queen to, to, a, young, to you know, to a, a, a mother of older children, to a grandmother, to a great-grandmother. So I think there's that longevity that's really allowed people to develop this very close relationship. I mean, I think 95% of people in Britain now don't remember a time when she wasn't queen. And that, might be, mm. that might be too high, but a vast majority of people here have never lived under another monarch. So you can understand that you know, that there's that there's that sort of sense of comfort that she brought, that she was always there no matter how much everything was changing around you. And obviously, Great Britain is a very different place than it was in 1953. So I think that's part of it as well, is that people have sort of feel like they that she's been there forever and that to lose her. One woman said today, the saddest part wasn't seeing the coffin. It was seeing the horse carriage leave without mm. the coffin. Mm. When the coffin was gone, it really hit home that, wait a second, she's gone. And you know, I think that's something that everyone's trying to talk out right now here. I think another thing that's really noticeable, too, is the presence of the family. They seem to be everywhere, whether they're, stand whether they're standing vigil or marching behind. Talk a little bit about the role of the family over the course of these days. Yeah, I mean, ceremonially, uh, in a ceremonial sense, there is sort of a, a set way that they would be expected to, to take part. Uh, but this is also, in some ways, and I think they've, they've done this on purpose. I mean, this is also a family in mourning. Um, and, and they've made sure that, you know, if there are any, um, if there's controversy out there, out there about who's there, what, what is Prince Andrew's role, uh, Harry, for instance, everyone has been brought back together for this period of mourning, because it is, at the end of the day, you know, they've lost a mom and a grandmother and a great-grandmother, and I think that's been sort of the focus, or at least it was up until today. I think now that she's lying in state and people are lining up for miles or kilometers to go, pay their respects, but that aspect of, of this is now done. We'll see the family again standing guard around, uh, around the coffin. At some point over this period that she's lying in state, we will see them perform something called the Vigil of the Princes, which we expect to be Charles and his three siblings, um, and Andrew and Edward. Uh, but really the family part of this is, you know, she's been kind of given back to the nation now right up until the funeral, and then there'll be a private burial service afterwards. So 
Um, you know, the family have played this big role. I think clearly, you know, it was set out that way so that Charles could be seen as being kingly, uh, if you can excuse that term, quite quickly. Um, you know, there was that importance as well. But it's been interesting. A lot of people have come out specifically to see the family, to lend their support to to the royal family in this time, their time of grieving. Uh, obviously, we know uh, the conflict between Harry and William and the rest of the family and such. Harry and Meghan both there, their role in all of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we know that there were certainly tensions in the build-up to this. Uh, we know that they went on a walkabout together uh, at Windsor over the weekend, last weekend, the four of them. Uh, I'm not sure what this means in the long run. I think Harry has a memoir coming out. Um, certainly when uh, the king spoke of them, uh, of his of both his sons in his first address to the nation, he spoke about William's role as now as Prince of Wales, and Kate becomes the Princess of Wales, the first since Diana, obviously. Uh, and he mentioned, you know, Harry and Meghan, his fondness for them, but they're living their own life abroad. Mm. And I get the sense that there is not going to be a role for them in this slimmed-down, new-look, Charles-led royal family. And that was, of course, uh, you know, Harry's choice. And, and I don't necessarily know whether anyone here thinks that's a terrible choice that he made. Um, but uh, you know, their role, I think, during this period of mourning, they'll be fully involved, I think, hopefully it mends fences between the brothers, between father and, father and son and son, daughter-in-law. Um, but we won't know. We will see them take part in all of this, though, because the idea is, to, is, is that you bury these hatchets. I know I mean, from what we've read, and you can imagine, that the Queen would have liked to have seen the brothers make up before mm. she passed, and that didn't happen. Uh, as is often the case with family conflicts, people pass away without seeing them resolved, which is always unfortunate, regardless of who your family is. Um, so I think all of that will be buried for this period, and we'll see what happens afterwards. But I think it's going to be the king and Camilla, the queen consort, and we're going to see a lot of Prince William and Catherine, the Duke, the uh, Prince and Princess of Wales. All right, last question, Ben. We've only got less than a minute left. Obviously, funeral sure. coming up on Monday, security uh, intense, a lot of leadership there from around the world. What's it going to be like on Monday? How do they keep this thing under control? Well, you know, they, they, they're used, they've hosted the Olympics, they've had the Diamond Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee, they, they know how to put on big events. They're going to keep it, the entire cord around that central area where Westminster uh, Abbey is, where Buckingham Palace is, is going to be locked down. Um, you know, the, and they're going to move people in by bus. That's what we're reading from the Prime Minister to the President of the United States, by bus to Westminster Abbey, no private cars. So we're going to see some things we haven't seen in a very long time. We haven't had a funeral like this, I think, in any of our lifetimes. So uh, the security uh, will reflect that. Ben O'Hara Byrne with us, host of A Little More Conversation weeknights right here on the Chorus Radio Network. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Poll question of the day on our Twitter page. Uh, should Monday be a federal stat holiday in Canada? 60% say yes, 40% say no. This is where the confusion lies. We were sort of all told the other day that, yeah, it's going to be a national holiday. But the Prime Minister stopped short of calling it a statutory uh, federal holiday, which would have seen banks and any federally gover- uh, federally uh, federal government uh, regulated business uh, close, then that decision, this decision, would have been uh, quite a bit easier. But instead, he basically just gave the day off to federal employees. Banks will remain open, businesses will remain open, and left it up to the provinces to decide if they want to change things, uh, i.e., 
have the kids in school or have the kids out of school. But at the end of the day, uh, really, it's only federal employees that get it off, not the rest of us, because uh, it, it is not a federal statutory holiday. And with Quebec and Ontario not, that's two-thirds of the population um, not getting the day off for this. So really... Um, <laughs> Shouldn't there have been a plan in place? It's not like we didn't know she wasn't going to pass away. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing okay. How are you? Good. We talked about this yesterday, but now clarity is coming out. And, you know, as soon as the banks decided they're not taking the day off, because we thought, well, this was just a government and bank holiday. Now it's not even that. It's just federal employees. Should we have a plan for when something like this happens? Did Britain not have what was it operation london bridge or something yeah it was called exactly yeah, yeah for 60 years i mean for for 50 i don't know 50 40 60 years they had a very clear laid out plan for when things happen and yes i i think that you know if that plan did not exist here maybe we should start having someone put together plans for you know what happens when former prime ministers die or what yeah. happens when I mean, I don't know, pick your, who, who's the most famous living Canadian right now? I mean, like a long-term, who, uh, Anne Murray, I don't know, name comes to mind. Like, do, do we do we do something when Anne Murray dies? I don't mean a national holiday, but like somebody maybe want to think <laughs> these Murray. things through. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I'm picking someone. I know, I know. I think of as like synonymous with Canada. Gordon Lightfoot, if you want. Um, yeah. I just, it's, it's just the idea, not that we're going to have national holidays, but you know, it would be nice that when these things happen, especially as these people are getting older and you can somewhat predict that at some point, like the queen, at some point they're going to pass away. What do we do about it? Do we, do we have a speech written? Do we, you know, what, just like planning is planning is a good thing. I'm not always the most organized person, but planning is a good thing. And now what's happened uh, because of the confusion. Now the provinces are taking the heat. Well, uh, Ford's not giving us the day off. Quebec's not giving us the day off because there's an election coming. And when really this confusion started at the top, when it was really, and if you listen to the clip, the prime minister really doesn't clearly state what is going to happen here. And everybody just assumes it's a national holiday. And then again, once the bank association fails, who's left? Well, again, uh, if Britain can now, I understand the Queen was British, and it's way more home base for them. But sure. if they can have this thing laid out to the letter, like what car is going to drive the Queen's coffin back, and all these things, if they can get it down to that letter of the law, surely we can have a rough guideline so that before this happened, the country, the federal government, could have talked to the provinces and said, "Here's the plan." Do we agree? Do we disagree? Let's come out as a as a, a common, you know, with a common voice. I it's as if a ninety six year old passing away was the biggest shock to every everybody in the world. Yeah, really? I mean, look, at, we we wanted the queen to live on, um, but at ninety six, it, it was a reasonable thing you could have predicted that that might happen. But, so um, I'll ask you. I'll ask you point blank: Should it be a holiday? Should the kids be off? Should we all be off? So we talked about this on the show last night, and uh, my my inclination generally is no, because I think that the various levels of government seem to give time off or seem to like, they do this kind of thing pretty willy-nilly and pretty easily. 
um, you know, even and even if it's not time off, like when we went through COVID, everybody just go home and we'll pay you. Right. Uh, the, the, you know, so it, generally, I would say no. In this case, I mean, she was the monarch for 70 years. I, I'm willing yeah. to say that if you serve in any office for seven decades, we will cut you the slack and say, yes, I, I, I'm okay with that being a holiday. But, but seven decades, Scott, is the, is the cutoff. Anything below that, no. <laughs> well, you know, we were, at, we were talking earlier that they should have a plan. This will now set a precedence because if they didn't do it for That's the right. Queen, they're not going to do it for anybody else. <laughs> if End Justin Trudeau is still Prime Minister in 2097 and passes oh, away... He gets a drive-by. Well, look, as I say, it's just... Uh, these are things that are... <laughs> Our system of government, whether we like it, whether everyone's a fan of it or not, we are a we, we do have the queen at the top of our system of government, even yeah. if it's only symbolic. Surely this kind of thing should have been at least thought through. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley show. The discussion continues after the six o'clock news. You can also it read it Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, you for listening. And that's why we leave it to you to provide us with the last word. Scott, this is Tony LeBlanc here. With all these officers that are in, in trouble, well, they've lost a couple of uh, mates. The officers left uh, that are working on the line, they're not the only ones suffering with stress. When they leave their house and they leave their spouses and their children and they say goodbye, that family left at home, they don't know whether they're going to see their their uh, uh, loved one again and, until they get home and in the door. So that puts an awful lot of stress and strain on the family life. It's just going to be one of those things that you have to treat the whole family, not just those that are on the front line. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.